Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Well, hello, and welcome to Pantisocracy, my little parlor of conversations and song. And for those of you who haven't been with us from the beginning, welcome. Where have you been? And yes, Pantisocracy is a real word. You can look it up. It means a society of equals. And I guess in a way, that's what we've been trying to fashion here. You know, a soiree, a place where we could all come together, even in these COVID-19 times, and share stories with and about contemporary art. So today, I've got three good people with me. A writer, a filmmaker, and a singer of songs in a show that we're calling Breaking Secrets and Silence. But perhaps there's another S in there too, shame. And it's been inspired by a powerful book by my guest, Kaylin Hogan, called Republic of Shame, about the stories behind Ireland's Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes. And with Kaylin are two folk who I got to hear about through the book, singer Jess Cavanagh, whose mum was born mixed race in one such place, and filmmaker Paul Dwan, who was himself born in the Sean Ross Abbey home, the place featured in the film Philomena. But before we get into all of that, first of all, I'd like to take the floor and say something, because I can. You know, queer people like me, well, we tend to have a lot of experiences in common. It's one of the things that makes it possible to forge a community from a disparate group of people that in so many other ways are often the unlikeliest of comrades. Some of these common experiences are painful ones. You know, the kind that leave a lifelong mark on you, a stubborn stain. And we recognize that stain on each other because we have that one too. And these marks, well, they cut across all other boundaries, boundaries of class, age, education, income, culture, language, you know, boundaries that might otherwise keep us apart. It's why the two old pals propping up the bar in any gay bar are just as likely to be a barrister from Kleine and a plasterer from Dolphin's Barn as they are to be two dentists from Trim, God forbid. One of those painful experiences, one that pretty much all queer people go through, and indeed some never escape, is one that we try to make light of by giving it a harmless, almost silly-sounding name, the closet. Being in the closet isn't silly and isn't harmless. It's lonely and torturous. It's an existential crisis. You know, usually landed on people who are way too young for existential crises. No one escapes the closet unmarked, but some don't survive it at all. They can't live in it, but they fear coming out of it so powerfully that they can't imagine living outside of it either. So they decide to do neither. The closet is built of shame and held together by secrets. A brutal and sometimes lethal combination and a heavy one. Secrets and shame weigh heavily down on you, constantly, never getting lighter. And you never get a rest, because that's the thing about secrets. They're patient. They will wait. You know, they wait for you to relax, because that's when you let your guard down and something slips out. Secrets and shame have all the time in the world, so they'll keep waiting. Five years, ten years, fifty years, a whole lifetime spent on edge, Afraid to relax, never letting your guard down. I hated the closet too because it was turning my family into acquaintances. I found myself lying to them about tiny things and about big things. And I was keeping a fundamental part of myself hidden from them. 
It was getting so that they didn't know me anymore. They only knew a fake facsimile of me, and keeping up that facsimile was exhausting. So I let them know me. Years later, I was diagnosed with HIV. And it was at a time when everyone was absolutely terrified of people with HIV. You know, they thought they'd catch it and die if they so much as passed you in the street. And it was a shock, you know, the diagnosis. Ten minutes after I left the doctor's office, I told two friends about it. Then I told all my other friends about it, and soon I told everyone, except my parents. I waited about a year until I had learned everything there was to know about HIV at the time before I told them, so that I could answer any and all questions they might have. Occasionally, someone will accuse me of bravery. It was brave of me to be so open about living with HIV right from the start and at that time. But they give me much more credit than I deserve. Because I wasn't being brave. I have a big mouth, so I knew I wouldn't be able to keep the secret anyway. But I was also just doing what I knew I had to do to survive. Thankfully, I hadn't spent very long in the closet, but it was long enough to know that I didn't want to go back, that I couldn't go back. And I didn't want to turn my family into acquaintances again. And when you've just been diagnosed with HIV in 1995, you need your family. Thank you. So welcome, all. And I guess one of the things that we are going to explore here today is the power of secrets to silence us. And in a way, how it's often shame that keeps those secrets locked up. And, you know, I have my own experience with those things. But, Caelan, what brought you to the book in the first place? I started reporting this in 2017, which was this really pivotal time. It was a few years after the marriage equality mm. referendum. Uh, it was looking ahead to the, the referendum on mm. repeal. And all these stories were coming to the surface about how the church and state had treated women in Ireland over no. the years, how pregnant women mm -hmm. had been treated. And I knew about the Magdalene Laundries growing up in a sort of distance, vague way, yeah. but I'd never spoken to anyone who had first-hand experience. Um, so I began to talk with people mm -hmm. who were survivors of the institutions. And as soon as I did, I realized how close to home it was. Yeah. I had friends whose mothers were born in the institutions, mm -hmm. who were adopted from them themselves. And it was my generation yeah. who was actually affected by these institutions. This some wasn't of, something. Some of the stories the are kind of wild. And now, in retrospect, it just seems hard to imagine uh, that it's not that long ago. And yes, your story is pretty wild. Do you want to tell us? about that yeah yeah um so i i found this out when i was about 13 that uh, my very overly affectionate grand aunt was actually my grandmother <sighs> and so what had happened is that um my biological grandmother had um, had had fallen pregnant, as they used to say. I love that expression, uh, yeah, that yeah. she tripped and fell on the <laughs> penis. <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> and it was completely only her fault. Um, but yeah, so she she had become pregnant and the, the child was mixed race and she was sent to the country, which we found out, um, Caelan helped me find out, was in Castle Pollard in, in Westmeath. And what year was this roughly? My mother was born in 1956, so we're mm. talking 1955 or so. And so her... Her sister at the time kicked up a big fuss. They're like, you know, you can't do this. You know, this is 
this is a member of our family and you know it was also the 1950s and she was a woman so nobody listened to her and so what she did is that she became very close to um ringing her sister kind of almost every couple of days and became very close to the nuns as well within castle pollard and she was married as well so it was kind of perceived as she was kind of this kind of good god-fearing kind of married sister who was kind of Mm. ringing her you know sister every day to make sure she was all right um, Checking what, up on the fall and sister. Indeed, and, yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And what she was actually doing was she was gaining intel um, from the nuns to find out where my mom was being sent to after she was being born. So she found out. Now, once again, these are all stories and it's all hushy and whatever else. But as far as I, I know, my mother was then sent to Black Rock. And uh, she adopted my mother directly out of that of that place. Yes, yeah, so the, the, that gets a little complicated when you hear that story. Yeah. So you're... Great aunt yeah. adopted your mother. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite complicated. So basically what happened is that her, yeah, so her sister adopted the baby back into the family because she was married and she could. Mm. So my Nana Betty, I found out, was actually my grand aunt and my grand aunt, Auntie Kay, was actually my grandmother. And the whole family knew the, the truth. Yes. And, and was that truth hidden from your mother as she was growing up or as far as I know my mom didn't find out till she was 15 yeah so it was yeah. it was very much hidden it was very like yeah we, we didn't talk about it and there was a lot of secrets and there was a lot of you know well look that happened and, and that's done and that's in the past and, and, mm. and nobody speaks about it but it was very interesting as as a young child growing up with a mother who was black aunties and uncles who were black and then having like white grandparents and kind of yes, how did they explain that to, away? Yeah. No, yeah, they kind of just expected me not to ask questions, which I thought was really funny. And when I began to write this poem for for Kaylin's book launch, one of the first things that kind of came to mind was was kind of used to I used to go to mass with my nana, my nana Betty. And I remember being in the back of the car and kind of like piping up in this real like, I have a fact and I'm a child being like, I found out mommy was adopted. And she just swung back and she was just like, why did she tell you that? You know, and immediately I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I shouldn't know this, you know, but she even at that age and even though it was obvious that my mother was adopted, she mm. didn't want us to know and she didn't want us to discuss it. Well, that whole yeah. thing of your know, sisters and being mothers and that all being a sort of an open but hidden secret is actually much more common than I ever realized. Yeah. And one of my best friends, when he was 16, found out his sister was his mother mm. and the whole street knew Mm-hmm. But they ne- always just kept it a secret from him. Yeah, it's amazing. Extremely common. Yeah, yeah, way more common than I expected. And and obviously, I've I've told the story a couple of times, and there's still guilt there for even saying mm. the story, especially because my mother and my my grandmother have passed away, so I don't necessarily have their like official thumbs up or whatever. But there's there's still that kind of shame and that secrecy yeah. around it, and if it's okay for me to discuss it. But when I have discussed it with people, um. A lot of people come up and go, oh, yeah, I've heard actually a friend of mine or your yeah. sister or a friend or yeah, quite common. Yeah. And because your grandmother, um, <laughs> she was sort of facing this double whammy of shame, really, because not only was she pregnant outside of marriage, but it was also a mixed race. Yeah. And at the time, although actually through doing the show, I found out that if you were a foreign man and you came to Ireland before 1965, you were having a good time. <laughs> they were very popular. <laughs> yeah I'm, I've heard bits and bobs like from my perspective of my family I know that who I would call my auntie Kay she moved back to England 
And I think that's a very common thing mm. for people who had mixed race families or had interracial relationships. They didn't stay in Ireland because yeah. there wasn't a society that welcomed it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of them did move. And it's, and it's kind of one of the reasons why I had a bit of a issue with over the last couple of years, this idea of kind of New Ireland. Yeah. Like, absolutely. It's great that we have more and accepting for, for people of colour and black people. But there is a huge generation of, of mixed race people who are my mother's age you know, who who didn't feel accepted. And mm. so therefore they relocated, you know, or alternatively, they didn't survive in the mother and baby homes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's so clouded and shrouded in so many layers of guilt and shame to do with sex and you know race and all these. Um, you mentioned the poem. Yes. And um, that you, you wrote for Caelan's book launch um, and you're going to do that for us. What's the poem called? The poem is called Four Girls in Blue. Four Girls in Blue faced four girls more and they shifted their shoes on a parquet floor. We ditched our classes, a laborious tomb to think of our future in assembly room. Two girls spoke of hostels where you go hang with boys. Two spoke of old women, left with old toys. Now I wanted the fields where I got up to no good, not a place with the L ones where high park stood. The girls said it's basically like hanging out with your friends. The old women are confused and they think they're young again. If you bring them your makeup, your magazines and games, they think they're like you. They think they're the same. Now, I was cursed with the youth in my family. were crippled with young deaths around me. I knew no elderly people. When I was 15, I thought maybe it's normal to believe you're a teenager. It's elderly turmoil. But it haunted me. And the story hung on from 15 to 33. A story 18 years strong. You see... I believe we ourselves, a network of ancestral info and the story hit the bank in my brain and didn't let go. Like stories of my nana working as a cook in a laundry where she smuggled in booze, cigarettes and maybe money. My nana who would stand up to a nun's violent throttle. She kept St Bernadette's halo on a blue water bottle. She ran away from home before her church bells sang to the Isle of Man with a motorbike gang. Her sister Kay moved to England so she'd be a nurse and dated a black man. To our family, she was cursed with a child unwanted, a child out of wedlock and she'd be sent to the country. Developmental deadlock. Even now, I have nightmares of being abandoned, alone in some woods, this pain transcended. When I was 13, I found my mother's birth cert and I read out my grandmother's name and my mom's voice, Kurt, said, Jess, have a fucking thing for a second. What is Kathleen short for? Think of a nickname. What are you staring at me for? Kathy? Maybe? I was bashful and ashamed that I wasn't smart as my mammy and sensitive to blame. She shouted, K, Jess. Auntie K is what's written. Why do you think she loved you? She was smitten. So you see, motorbike granny, my nana Betty, went behind her family's back, adopted her sister's baby. Then her and her husband, fearing my mom would feel left out, adopted three other mixed-race kids in 1960s Beaumont. Liz, Susan, Dermot Jr. and Anna. I still have three, but not my mother. But fuck me, you should be there when the cousins scattered and afar get drunk together, all beige and ambiguous, and we wonder what the fuck we are. Padre Pio and rosaries and four black children. Malevolence, generosity wielded the DNA of my family. Tragedy and circumstance, survivor mode, a state of mind, an unshook permanence. Inherited anxiety, 
inherited rage, inherited rebellion, inherited wisdom and sage, inherited connection to the women left behind in High Park with survivor skin and a teenage mind. To a system against them, to a system we are told that's finished, irrelevant, but we know unresolved, to the most powerful man in our state unable to spit an apology for families unstable. To the girls in blue, to the women in black, to the women who still wake up feeling attacked, know your sisters are close and we hold you while you sleep. That the known and the unknown, the memories we keep, and we will always hold you. We will hold your space for healing and love, for peace and grace. And when those parquet floors are gone, I will sing our song in my DNA. I know something went wrong and that will always drive me to do what's right. To the white, black, brown and blue girls, we have been born to fight. That's so powerful, wonderful. I think, yes, come and back down and join us. That's beautiful. Put your feet up. The thing about the whole, you know, what Mary McAleese called the architecture of shame and... uh, uh, Kaylin, you've described it so beautifully in similar terms, is that in, I have discovered that it has touched nearly every Irish person in some way. And me too, in a small way, when I was 17 in my first year in college with you, Paul, you know, my friend from home fell pregnant and she came and stayed with me for a short while in Dunleary. And then she went to a, a mother and baby home and I went on the bus to the mother and baby home with her and left her there feeling really just, I, oh God, devastated but it's a complicated thing for me oh and here's the other thing about it so saying, we're still friends say we have basically never spoken about it afterwards i mean i visited her there a few times and then we just never talked about it again and it has stayed with me all my life and i think about it but it's a complicated feeling for me because at the time we didn't see the mother and baby home as some terrible institution that was going to do her wrong We saw it as a savior because she was hiding it because of her father, who was a notorious man of temper and all that stuff. So I have complex feelings about that in my life. Now, Paul, you know, I just touched off it along the way in my life, but your life began in in this. Like, what are your feelings? It's very hard for me to, to know exactly what my feelings are about it because... I didn't experience it firsthand. My yeah. experience of it has been through talking to my birth mother. Yeah, yeah, so what is your story? Uh, well, I was adopted mm. and I think probably unofficially and not through a kind of an agency or whatever. Mm. I think it was done through, you know, priests or connections. Yeah. And I knew it, you know, it, it was done in a very positive way. I mean, mm. I was brought up knowing I was adopted. My parents, my adoptive parents were extremely kind and thoughtful and supportive mm. Um, But it was always just this question mark, you know, and as I got older, I began to attempt to fill in the blank. Mm. And every attempt I made, I think I started when I was about 30. Uh, every attempt I made was rebuffed, just went into a vacuum. And I was but going, rebuffed where or by who? Well, I didn't know. It was done through what's now Tuzla, but it was yeah. then, I can't remember the name, it was a different agency. Because um, there was no, there still is, I think, no active way for an adopted person to find their birth parents without their birth parents coming to find them or Mm. meeting them halfway it's still not allowed so I was making the attempt and I kept 
trying, and I think over a period of almost 20 years, I kept trying sporadically, mm. but having almost given up hope when finally I managed to make contact through but before I actually did backtrack a bit, I'd actually gone to the records office down beside Burdock's um, in the Liberties where they keep all the birth certs because I'd been told, you know, everybody's birth cert is in there. you got to look for one with your birth date with only a mother's name. And I knew my birth mother's first name. So I, I sat there for like two days and went through like something out of, you know, uh, an old private eye movie, yeah. took down these big books and went through them with a ruler looking, you know, through every single birth on my birth date until I found the one that matched what I knew. And I, then I found out I was born in Sean Ross Abbey. Which was, was that heart stopping? It was, yeah. I still have the my photocopy of my birth cert on my wall at home. You know, it's got my a, a wrong name, which when I showed it to my birth mother, she said, that wasn't the name I ever would have given you. Mm. I think it might have been assigned by the nuns or whatever. And did you immediately recognise Sean Ross? I knew what it was. I mean, the film Philomena is mm. based around... You know, uh, the famous Philomena story was all based around there. And I'd actually met Philomena at the IFTAs. And I, I had no idea at that point that there was that connection between us, that yeah. my birth mother and, and, and her were both in the same place and uh, probably roughly the same time, although I don't know when, maybe it was a bit before. And how long from finding the birth cert to actually getting in contact with your birth mother? Uh, very soon after, but there was no connection. It was just that the breakthrough happened. Mm. It turned out that the problem was that my birth mother had was in a relationship, was married mm -hmm. and didn't dare rock the boat. I mean, mm -hmm. her husband knew, but her circumstances had changed. She was basically able to contact me without fear of upsetting, rocking the boat at home. Mm -hmm. And she did. And it was an extraordinary experience. But one of the things about it was get, just getting the blow by blow account from her of what exactly it was like to enter mother and baby home at the age of I think she was 17 or 18 I mean she'd very innocently had a holiday fling working in a, a holiday job when she just left school with a chap who was slightly older than her mm. neither of them having the slightest idea about what they were, about sex education what was going on yeah. and heartbreakingly she said she was just craving affection she just was never hugged was never held was never mm. you know and so it was it was it was a huge thing for her to fall in love for the first time and then from that a couple of months later to being driven to the door of the mother and baby home by her enraged father and left there to give birth and as she told it without anesthetic or medical attention and she had an epileptic seizure in the middle of giving birth and it was deliberately enforced that treatment was enforced to teach her a lesson that was the way that she phrased it to me the girl's maternity was used against them to inflict pain and mm. suffering on them to show them not to do this again and and you know uh, and the most heartbreaking thing was that she suffered from survivor's guilt all these years because she was able to walk out the door she didn't have to stay. yeah how long was she there only a matter of a couple of months i think mm. you know but the, i mean the term generally was much longer than that Kim, wasn't it? it was like people women who went in there who were working class yeah were expected to work that's one of the interesting thing because yeah. your mother was from middle class background yeah. and i don't know whether the family paid money or could have been she was treated differently because of her class background she said that because her parents had a business the nuns treated her as a respectable girl, you know, and she saw all the other women in there, the young women, and knew that they were going to be there for maybe the rest of their lives. And also they were compelled to look after their children to the age of two in most cases. I mean, you know, before they were taken. So she didn't have to, I mean, it was traumatic, very traumatic for her. She gave me up at, you know, 
a week old or whatever. But mm. the idea of having to look after a child that you'd given birth to until they were two years old and then give it up. Yeah, it's incredible. It's sadistic, you know. So, yeah, I mean, the whole thing shook me quite a lot. And the fact that she was so, it left such a scar in her that she spent the rest of her life trying to make up for it. And for years kept a room in her house where she put up young women who were hiding it from their parents, basically who had pretended they were away in England working, whereas they were actually yeah. coming to term and giving up a child and then they'd be able to go home mm. without having, you know. So she kept this room where these women, it was, again, I'm conflicted about it because this was the Catholic Church doing this. They were bringing these girls to her and they were then allowed to, but it was better, in her mind, mm. it was better than consigning him to a yeah. home, you know. So she spent a lot of time kind of almost making up for her. I mean, yeah. she had nothing to make up for, for God's sake, but it was just this guilt. You know? But so her other family still don't know. No. So you're in this kind of weird position of, you know about half-siblings and... Well, you get, the thing is, it brings home the double standard very strongly because when I contacted, I was able to find out my birth father's circumstances from, from my birth mother. He's unfortunately dead, but I contacted his family and they were delighted because in a way to be the father of an, an unwanted, illegitimate child or whatever is not as bad as being the mother of mm. one. So... I was totally accepted and introduced to everybody in their family, whereas on my birth mother's side, the shame exists, you know. She's 70 odd now, you know, and she's still scared to admit that she had this indiscretion, this kind of mistake in her youth that, you know, because she'd lose face with her other members of her family. Apparently. Yeah, it's incredible. It's really embedded deep. Yeah. yeah. It's... Caelan, how common is this kind of story? So common that there are so many women in Ireland who are keeping these secrets. And I think the weight of those secrets, it just mm. is such a burden for people to carry, keeping it secret from their own families, mm -hmm. from their husbands and the fear of it being found out. And I think, you know, it's the fear of uh, people finding out that they had a baby, that they, you know, had sex outside of wedlock. It's some people still feel the yep. shame imposed on them from that. But also think I now, now I think there's um a feeling as well of, you know, well, I haven't searched for my child. If women mm. haven't, you know, will people judge me for that? How yeah. can they understand that I've kept a child secret all this time? And I think, you know, anyone I've talked to who has told their family, who has broken that silence, is often met with love and, uh, and understanding, mm. especially from their own children. I think our generation has been talking about this and understanding it more. Uh, but there just are so many people who are who are still in silence and, and keeping know, the secret. Well, because it's funny, it's going to sound underrated, but what I'm uh, very keenly aware of is so I've been HIV positive since 1995 and I've been open about it since then. And at that time, people were terrified of you. And every time I speak about being HIV positive, like in a public, like on the radio or something, I know that for the next few weeks, I'm going to start getting emails and they're from people who are down in Cahersivine or Ballyhonis or whatever. And they're living with HIV and they've never told a single soul. Nobody. Just they, they and the doctor know and nobody else. They've never told a family member. They've never told a friend. They've never told somebody on the local football team and they're quiet, they sing and whatever. And it's weighs this t psychic turn on them. And it's something that I treat so lightly because I take this pill every day and get on with my life and I, I don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. But to them, it's this giant millstone and it's killing them, you know. Yeah. There was one woman I spoke to recently uh, who I, I think she is in her early 80s and she became pregnant by sexual assault. She was raped. 
Um, and she has never spoken about it with her friends or anyone she knows. And she's quite a religious woman. So she would have a church group. She'd go to church mm. and she'd hear people from church talk about how the mother and baby homes, oh, it's all the media. Oh, it's not true. You know, oh. women were treated fine. She was sent to Sean Ross Abbey, actually, and had to stay there quite a long time and has reconnected with her child, but it keeps it secret. Mm. And you just could feel the pain of it, you know, of of people within her own church group telling her, oh, Mm. this is lies. Oh, you know, they just they're against religion. They're against the church. And she'd experienced that herself. Mm. And I think there's so many people who are going through that and neighbors keeping secrets from themselves and secrets kept within within families. It's had a huge impact on our society. I think Mm. the addiction rates in, in Ireland are a direct result of that institutionalization, that shame and that secrecy. Mm. It really is something we're still working through today. Yeah, because one of the things that I'm constantly struck by is about how pervasive it was. And there's a tendency, I think, for people to say, oh, it was them, they did it. But everyone was involved in some way. I think it's so hard, though, for for people in my generation to to understand the power of the church at the time, the lack of choice, you know, and I think you know, let's speak with my friend, a lot of the that coercion was more subtle than just having babies ripped from mother's arms, which did happen. But it was this idea that they were selfish to keep their children and people internalize that shame. Mm. Mothers internalize that. And I mean, it was just it was a system from the industrial schools to the Magdalene laundries yeah. and mother and baby homes. And it was often generational. So you'd speak with people whose mother had been born in a mother and baby home they maybe weren't adopted, sent to an industrial school and then, you know, came out at yeah. 16 as a young woman with no knowledge of their own bodies or sex education mm. and would quickly get pregnant and would be sent through the same institutional system. Yeah. And it was cultural uh, rather than purely religious in the sense that, you know, for example, my friend, her father was not a religious man, mm-hmm. but he would have beaten her black and blue if he found that because it was the cultural shame of it, you know. Yeah. Um, Jess. Yes. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about your music and that, and especially because you weren't aware as a kid that you were mixed race in a sense, because people didn't tell you, even though it must have been obvious, but you know, when you're a kid. Um, So in a way you came to that a little later in life, but it's very much part of the music you make and the sound. I think for me, I... What really what it was is I, I grew up with a diet of, of soul music because mm. that's what my mom listened to. My mom was yeah. big into her music. Also, my mom used to work in the Purdy Kitchen. And then after she worked in the Purdy Kitchen, she worked in Whelan's. <laughs> so I, I grew up in that scene, you know, when I was when I was younger. So obviously my mom knew Tin Lizzy and, you know, uh, Phil, I think, hung out with my uncle and so on. So music was always a big part of my life. And mm. um, when I started singing, though, I noticed that my voice was soulful. Now, I would have gone to all the kind of gigs when I was, you know, 15, but... A lot of the time in the early 2000s, it was skinny white guys, yes. you know, and, and that was that was the vibe. Do you know what I mean? And so I was kind of getting up and I was like, this isn't working for me. Um, and so I grew up with like Aretha Franklin and I grew up with like listening to kind of classic soul music, but then big into like Erica Badu and big into mm. Janelle Monet and kind of neo soul. Your mother. So she was half, half Nigerian. Nigerian. Yeah. And she died in 2006. Oh. I was 20. And around that time. You were, in a sense, exploring that part of your identity. Very much so. And there's a lovely thing about you trying to get your mother to go and get her hair braided. 
That's right. So it's kind of it's very bittersweet for me because now we're looking at at a, at a Dublin and an Ireland that's very different. That's mm. a lot more multicultural. We have a very strong black community and, and people of colour. And, you know, my mom was beginning to start to get a bit like, I might get some dreads, <laughs> you know, and we were like, yeah, mom, do it. let's do it. Let's get you some dreads. You know what I mean? And she was thinking about doing things that were kind of embracing her ethnicity and we were really really encouraging that and then the knock-on effect is that I was very much embracing my ethnicity but as a white passing mixed race person Mm. that was kind of treated a lot differently that was like oh you're showing off and it's like well no I'm not showing off you're kind of showing that you see blackness as a commodity so that's your problem (laughs) you know what I mean like this is me embracing the fact that I am you know, a person of colour, that my mother is mixed race, that my grandfather is Nigerian and I'm and I'm proud of that lineage. Mm. And it's very much in the music and it's that I that I, that I write and 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 I hope in the way that I, I carry myself and, and the communities that I navigate within. But was that a very you were consciously exploring that part of your identity or it it just sort of happened through the music? It was a mix of both, for sure. And um, what I would have gotten growing up when I started in the industry, I would have had people come up to me after a gig and say, do you realise that you sound like a black person? And they'd never, and it would always go down in, in, in volume yeah. when they get to that bit. You sound like a black person. <laughs> and and I'd kind of look at them and I'd be like, you know, sweaty and just off stage. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, my mom's black. And then they'd kind of laugh and they wouldn't know if it was a joke or not. Yeah. And then I, you know, very quickly try and leave. (laughs) But it was a relatively regular thing that I would have gotten. But I feel like when I went to London or when I go to the States, it's it's just easy. People are like, oh, yeah, you're black in it, you know, and they just get, you know, they see light skinned mixed race people a lot more. So I, I did immediately feel a lot more accepted. I've definitely found as I've gotten older, I have created my community of people who are close to me and I have a lot more people of colour in my life, a lot more queer black people in my life. And that has allowed me to navigate those spaces in a way where I feel safer and more mm. myself, for sure. Yeah. yeah, And it's an interesting time to be getting into all that because yeah. you know, Black Lives Matter and all Indeed. of that. Kaylin, is it true that if you were pregnant with a mixed race baby, that you were really treated worse than... There was a double shame. Uh, you know, I spoke to a woman who, who was sent to the biggest mother and baby home in Ireland, St. Patrick's in Dublin, and, and she was pregnant with, a, you know, a mixed race child. And uh, it was this extra shame and it was very difficult as well, I think, for mixed race Irish children because especially in the early years, they tended not to be adopted and many were institutionalised for years. So Rosemary Addiser of Association of Mixed Race Irish, who, you know, really fought. There's obviously a commission of investigation into these institutions. She fought for, you know, discrimination on the base of race to be investigated. And that's also discrimination against the travelling community as well. Uh, I spoke with people who were in the institutions and nuns would tell them, you know, we're going to beat the traveller out of you type thing. Uh, So it was, you know, discrimination was an endemic in the institutions Mm. and many mixed race Irish children were sent to the industrial schools, institutionalised for their whole childhood. And often then the minute they got out of those institutions just left Ireland because they thought they could never have a sense Mm -hmm. of equality or freedom because of what had been beaten into them Mm -hmm. in those institutions. So many left to the UK. And I think that was this form of erasure. Mm -hmm. You know, we just weren't aware of mixed race Irish people in the 50s and 60s. 
uh, it erased a whole community and it was that was deliberate that's yeah. why there was a system of secrecy and institutionalization was to hide anyone who didn't meet that ideal of what was Irish yeah uh, and uh, you've actually talked very powerfully about that growing up and feeling because you were gay because yeah. those institutions were built to keep that definition of Irishness yeah. narrow and we're finally expanding it and embracing a much more inclusive yeah. until sense the sort of, of late 80s when then every mixed race Irish person was thrust onto television Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah TV programs to try and look um, Now, Paul, you are probably very lucky to be adopted as soon as you're ginger. <laughs> <laughs> that is a terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know my hair. My hair used to be Auburn. <laughs> Auburn. Listen, I, I, I'm part of that. Oh no, it's Auburn. I've crew too. And in the summer, my hair goes Auburn. <laughs> I've been asked whether I identify as ginger before, and I, I choose not to. <laughs> You create your own identity. Mm-hmm. Actually, Paul, um, Paul, I was looking at you and I was like, I hope when I'm a big girl, my hair is like yours. Oh, I do. It's going to be very similar to yours, I think. We both have the grey streaks. So. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, so you, your films, um, I don't want to throw them all into one, but they often focus on sort of outsiders or nuts, if I can call them that. Yeah, yeah um, grumpy old men, I've read them described. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's a bit unfair, but do you think... You know, that your background has in some way played into your artistic endeavours in that way. Possibly. I mean, you know, there may be some sense of, I mean, uh, I've made, uh, my first film was about John Healy, the London Irish wino, ex-wino who became a chess uh, champion and a best-selling author and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And there was a, f- a few times where people said, you know, he looks a lot like he could be your dad. I'm like, oh, don't freak <laughs> me out. But there was a certain odd resemblance. And the fa- weird fact is that his sister had given a child up for adoption. And at one point I did think, Hang on, maybe could that be? But obviously it wasn't. But you know, maybe there's a sort of a, 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 a father figure thing going on there. I don't. But really it's also because I, I I read a thing where you had said that in a way you never really felt um, you know Ireland was home. Mm. Uh, a, a feeling that I I could identify with at part times, and uh, but that it's only recently since the sort of repeal and these kind of things that you've begun begun to feel a sense of Ireland as home in a way that you hadn't before. Um, and, yeah, well, explain that to me. I think growing up in the 80s, it was, I'm, I'm currently working on a project that's set in the 60s in Ireland, and it resembles a lot Eastern Europe. It resembles East Germany. When you look at it, it's just that you swap out the communists for the Catholic Church. Mm. The same, same kind of authoritarianism, the greyness and the conformity mm. was there. And I think growing up in that world, I felt very much like I didn't fit. Mm. And it wasn't a simple thing of identity. It just it just didn't suit me. Yeah. And I think for a long time I found my place in, uh, I mean, I moved to London and ended up living in Soho and found that a very interesting place to be. But you know, coming back to Ireland, like my timing was immaculate. I returned to Ireland in 2007. But I do find that there's been something very interesting that's happened since then. And a lot of the people that I kind of admire um, and, 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 and find interesting culturally now are people who grew up after the Celtic Tiger mm. and who grew up in a world where they couldn't expect kind of anything really yeah. and they've created their own kind of culture mm-hmm. and they've created their own world and I find I find myself much more drawn to that Ireland than I was to what was there before. Well what I do enjoy about this moment post all that stuff is um, there is a feeling now that uh, 
change is possible and that young people feel that. Because I, you know, I think during the Celtic Tag years, and not, you know, young people were only interested in drinking Bacardi breezers in you know, bars with glass tabletops. You know what I mean? And you couldn't get them to be, care about anything. And now it seems like young people spend every weekend out protesting and marching and it's brilliant to see. Um, yeah, I feel very at home in that world. Change. It's great though, because I mean, in the eighties, I was I was a big fan of like this kind of you know there was all this kind of political stuff happening in the UK with Red Wedge and uh, you know groups that were rock against racism. There yeah. was a huge amount of cultural involvement in politics, which then fell away uh, post you know the kind of Thatcher era and all that. Yeah. And I don't think really ever existed in Ireland. I mean, we had self aid and things like that, but it was very tepid, you know. Yeah, it was. I don't think a culture really engaged with uh, politics. And well, I mean, we're not very demonstrative in no. many ways unless we're drunk or at a funeral. You know, um, <laughs> you know, even our Catholicism was yeah. quite, you know, we were never evangelicals. No. You know, that's no, embarrassing to us or something. Yeah. And, and I mean, something I was, when, when Jess was talking earlier on, I was thinking, I mean, when I was, during the 80s, like the commitments was a big thing. And I always felt very uncomfortable with that kind of appropriation of, mm-hmm. of black. And I, I kind of wondered whether that was something that, you know, you kind of had to overcome or felt that it kind of impinged on your I, love I of soul loved, music. I loved the commitments growing up because I felt seen because I was like, I wanted to, I wanted to um, play soul music. And so that was the first thing I got, you know what I mean? But I was young and I was innocent and I didn't realise that Otis Redding existed. And so I moved on from that very quickly. But now, Jess, I can't help it, Oza. You are sitting there wearing your uh, More Blacks, More Dogs, More Irish t-shirt. And you are wearing that same t-shirt on the Black Lives Matter protest. And yes. Caelan, I believe you were also. Um, I was covering it, yeah. Yeah, so you, you, you were there in professional capacity. <laughs> was, yeah. uh, but that is interesting, isn't it? Because, um, first of all, I think the fact that there are enough people in Ireland who care about black lives at all is a, a sign of how Ireland has changed. We didn't know anything about black lives, you know, when I was a kid. There were only people on the TV or something. That's an interesting change. And then that is also tied in with this whole idea of change is possible. Young people feel they can change things because they have. And people feel like they could speak, finally. There was just so much silence, you know. People were scared of what their neighbours, terrified of what their neighbours would think. So many people said that to me. You know, I was sent to an institution because people were terrified of what the neighbours would say. We're now trusting each other and speaking to each other and stories are emerging and surfacing. And we're also, like, proud to be Irish in a new way, I think. You know, there was was so much shame around, you know, in our society for so long. And I think young people are finally reclaiming that pride in Irishness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a brilliant, inclusive, bold, new identity. Yeah, I I honestly didn't like being Irish when I was, you know, I remember working in Tokyo in my early 20s and it was St. Patrick's Day and which is nothing in Japan absolutely nothing but a group of Irish people were coming to the club that I was working and I went around and told every staff member beforehand do not tell them I'm Irish because I didn't want to have to oh you're from wherever because I have felt no connection to them now that has changed and now I'm delighted to be Irish but you know at that time I was sort of ashamed of it or what I have found to be really beautiful about the Black Lives Matter movement in Ireland is that it, it has begun, not begun, but it, ha- it has amplified the discussion in regards to, to mixed race Ireland, you yeah. know, because there has been that, well, Irish people aren't racist. You know, <laughs> yeah. We don't have systemic racism in Ireland. And people are like, well, actually, no, we, we did. And we did as far back as the mother and baby homes. So this is the systemic, you know, this is the system even that also was facilitating this kind of eradication of mixed race Irish kids. And so that has been there and it still is there, you know, and now we have direct provision. 
yeah. you know, and the way that these these people are being treated in, in direct provision. So it's allowing those platforms to be discussed in a really important way. And I'm very, very grateful. And I think somebody that. in 20 years will be writing you know, another version of the Republic of Shame yeah. about mm. the direct provision system. There's so um, many parallels. Well, this is a beautiful segue yeah. uh, into um, just the song you're going to do for us. It is um, a Hosier song. It is. Because you have worked with Hosier and toured them as backing singer. Um, yeah. And weirdly, I have a weird little connection to the song because I'm in the video. You're in the video. Yes, which is a fun and easy thing to do. So, yes. And it's, well, you can tell us about the song. Yeah, so it's called Nina Cried Power. It's an incredible song. And uh, I was very lucky that I got to sing Mavis Staples' part uh, with Hosier um, two years ago at Electric Picnic. Mm. So I'm very, very grateful. And I will sing it for you guys now. Can I just say, Jess, uh, your voice is incredible. Thank you. Really, really, yeah, it's special. Oh, thanks, Monty. That means a lot. So Jess, you are singing uh, Hosier's Nina Cry Power and you're being accompanied here on piano uh, by Keen Boylan. <laughs> Take it away. It's not the waking, it's the rising. It's the grounding of the foot and compromising. It's not forgoing of the lies. It's not the opening of eyes. It's not the waking, it's the rising. It's not the shade, we should be past it. It's the lying and it's the obstacles that cast it. It's the heat that drives the light. It's the fire it ignites. It's not the waking, it's the rising. It's not the song, it is the singing. It's the heaven of the human spirit bringing. It's the bringing of the light. It's the bearing of the rhyme. It's not the waking, it's the rising. And I can cry in power. It's not the war, but what's behind it? Fear of the man, it's mere assignments. It's not all that we deny by keeping the divide. It's not the waking, it's the rising. And I could cry, I can cry power. 
stronger than me Straight into the face Tell you to rattle your chains If you love being free And I could cry power Cause power is my love When my love reaches me Oh, Johnny, cry power James Baldwin, cry power And woman, cry power Ooh, ooh I could cry power Oh, power, Lord Ah, Lord And Woody, Dylan, Patty And Dina cry Amazing. That was very special. Oh, and I'm so honored that my little mention you threw in yeah. there. Oh my God. <laughs> um, God, thank you so much. Oh, you're very I welcome. Very, uh, uplifted. Yay. Uh, it's actually one of the great things about doing this show is that we get to see like performances like that up real close and it's, it's amazing. Yeah, hope it uh, wasn't too loud for you guys. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I want to sort of come back to finally just to sort of the idea of you know, breaking these silences and sort of getting it all out in the open. Paul, I mean, what is like your relationship with your birth mother like now? Uh, a little, a little arm's length, but warm, you know, mm. but uh, but not not um, not close. Yeah. It's just difficult for, I think once somebody has given up a child, not knowing what's happened to that child, you have to build a wall. I think internally there has to be an emotional distance that has to be constructed for you to survive. Mm -hmm. And I think you can't easily dismantle that. It's just very, very hard for a woman to to break down that internal mm -hmm. wall once it's been put up for, for very, very real reasons. It needs to be there, you know. Or do you feel in, in some way that... Even if the relationship isn't, you know, the, the Hollywood one, that, that a circle has been closed or something? Absolutely, or? yeah. No, it's incredibly important, I think, to, you know, in the, in, in, I don't want to be dramatic, but you do kind of, if you're adopted and there's a kind of a question mark and a vague area where your history should be, you wonder mm. if there's some terrible story. I mean, you know, I grew up in the era of finding out about Father Michael Cleary yeah. and all these hideous, grim stories of rape and violation and... And to discover that, you know, my origins, my birth was a very innocent kind of teenage romance mm. was was helpful and mm. was there was closure, you know, and, and, and a sense of kind of, thank God, you know, there's yeah. nothing, there's no awful, you know, you don't want to discover you're related to one of these grim yeah. Yeah, people yeah, yeah. in some non-consensual way. So, yeah, I kind of, yeah, there is closure and, and it's fine. It's good. It's good to get it, you know. No, I mean, not everybody has a great relationship with their parents. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even if you have them all your life. Yeah, yeah even if yeah. you know them all your life. So, yeah, yeah it's fine. And just how connected have you gotten to your Nigerian roots or have you at all I mean like I, I would consider my, my Dublin Nigerian family to be my surrogate <laughs> my sur <laughs> and, the, and so there's there's a really nice uh, Nigerian community in Ireland and I feel very close to a lot of my friends who are Nigerian or of Nigerian background mm. I'm kind of happy with the mystery I have a lot of friends who have like encouraged me to, to go to Nigeria go to Lagos um, it's definitely something I would love to do mm. what, I, what I'm really feeling grateful for at the moment is working on that semblance of kind of intergenerational trauma you know 
we've talked about the kind of trauma that that these uh, women and these people have gone through because of these mother and baby homes, but also the severe lack of support, the no lack of mental health, you know, not giving the the opportunity to um, get support or even articulate how they feel. You know, it's all kept, it's all internalized. And so if I'm able to be that mouthpiece, Mm. if I'm able to talk for my granny to some extent, to talk for my mom to some extent, and may that be through um, being involved in the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. or may that be involved in, you know, talking about our background and hoping that other people connect through that. Yeah. That to me is catharsis. Mm. And, and on the positive side, if you had grown up with your Nigerian family, they would have made you become a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> They're very <laughs> into their education. All that. <laughs> they make you study hard. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, Caelan, so you've had this opportunity to have this sort of big overview on something that... We, we think of as history, but it has so many tentacles in the present. Do you see a sort of a, you know, similarities or threads or between those two things? There are so many parallels with the system of direct provision yes. where we're institutionalizing vulnerable people for profit uh, and exploiting them again. Uh, and, you know, people that I've spoken to who survived the mountain laundries, who survived the institutions have said it's very painful for them to revisit the trauma that they experience and tell their story. It's not necessarily a cathartic thing. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And many say they do it so that we don't repeat that system again and I think we are repeating it and we need to realise and I think these stories coming to the surface have been really important for people understanding direct provision in a new way Um, and we just need more you know to make it okay for people to speak and so you know just speaking to each other uh, and realising that we don't have that that shame isn't ours that shame that people have internalised it doesn't belong to you it's not something you did it was something imposed on you and I think that's really important um, to understand and then just the rights to identity Uh, you know like Paul was saying like just having to go and search through ledgers having no access to your own name your own files the fact that that's still going on in this country is, is shameful Uh, And there is legislation being passed in our own names today that is continuing to deny adopted people the right to their own information, their own files. There's attempts to seal records for 75 years, for generations. The church is still remaining silent. The religious orders are still not speaking. We don't know where hundreds of children who died in these institutions are buried. There's still mothers searching for where their babies are buried. We all need to speak about how we were complicit in the system and learn from that so Hmm. that we don't repeat it. Well, thanks for the book. I found it very um, moving and educational. Well, um, that's it. Thank you very much, all three of you. I've, um, well, I feel like I've I've learned a lot from you three people. Um, And so um, that is it for this episode of Pandasocracy. And my thanks to my three guests, um, who I'll just remind you, um, are uh, Caelan Hogan, Jess Kavanagh and Paul Duran. And to Kean Boylan, I don't know where he's run off to, um, who accompanied Jess on Unicried Power. Um, Thanks to Hosier too for um, agreeing to... um, Thanks, Andrew. Yes, thanks, Andrew. Um, And of course, you can see all the videos of today's bits and pieces, especially the performances, online at pandasocracy.ie, as always. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, Paddy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yay! Yay. <laughs>